Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today's show, I just want to take a moment to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for their kind sponsorship and for their support throughout the years. Today's podcast explores the opportunity to change an entire generation by preventing food allergies. We explore with board-certified allergist and FACS Medical Advisory Board member, Dr. Jonathan Spurgel, how to make early introduction a reality for families who are expanding. Welcome, Dr. Spurgle. We're absolutely delighted and honored to host you today on the Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to chat with the folks at Fact. This is very exciting. This is a topic that a lot of people are talking about, so we're just going to dive right in here. I have been managing food allergies in my home for over 22 years, and I never, ever thought in our food allergy community we would be having this type of conversation today about how to actually prevent food allergies. It just blows my mind. It feels like a complete miracle, actually. Can you bring our listeners up to speed on what early intervention and prevention of food allergies means? Everyone's talking about this right now, but what does this mean? So... It's old news and new news. I mean, it's going back to what our grandparents did. I mean, introducing foods sort of the way we did 50 years ago, 75 years ago. I mean, the idea of introducing foods late was really sort of ideas like, let's avoid the allergens so they won't come allergic to it. But there was never any good science behind it. It was just someone's idea. People started to look at what we found by both observational studies, that's just people looking at what happened in populations, and then random controlled trials. And it's been consistently seen over the last decade now that early introduction prevents food allergies. So if you give foods early, you're less likely to become allergic. So whether it's milk, egg, peanut, tree nuts, anything, earlier is better. You have to wait till they're ready to eat. So start anywhere between four and six months with the child's developmentally ready, you give them the food. Ask grandma what they did. So that's that's my advice these days. Excellent advice. My son was diagnosed at age two. And then when my daughter came along, it was during the time of, nope, you delay. So this is just incredible to me. How do soon-to-be parents deal with this? So should they be speaking to their pediatrician about early introduction? Who should they be speaking to? Or should they just go ahead and try it on their own? All the guidelines, whether you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics, there was a recent recommendation from the both the American Allergy Societies, both the Quad AI and the ACAI, the Canadian Allergy Societies, the federal government, so the federal guidelines, basically the people that make up the food triangle came up with one as well. They all say more or less the same thing. When you look at the guidelines in 
Europe, Australia, but everyone's pretty consistent now. You want to give foods. There's some subtleties of which one to add when, but they're more or less the same as early foods early on. Your pediatrician should know this. It should be in the pediatric things. It's been sort of known the last few years, but you can look at organizations like FAC have that information as well, but you can also look at the national guidelines as well of when to give foods. But basically, you try foods at four, six months of life, and you slowly add it into the diet. So then let's go a little deeper now. So what does a parent do if a pediatrician says, okay, we need to do early introduction, but they already have a child with food allergies? How do we tackle that? Right. So that's always a really tricky one, right? Because it obviously depends on the age of the child, but when your child say your two-year-old is allergic to milk, so we'll take the most common allergen, now you want to introduce it to your six-month-old. And you just don't want this two-year-old to steal the six-month-old's milk, right? So you do need to be careful about that. When you're giving that six-month-old the first spoons of yogurt, you make sure that you, as the parent, or whoever's feeding the kid, that, hey, this is Tommy's yogurt, and this is Susie's yogurt, right? Or whoever, whatever names they give. Hopefully, I give politically correct names these days. Huh? You want to make sure that one kid has it, the other kids don't. They can't share the food, and they can separate. I mean, they can be around, they can be at the same table to, with each other, but they can't be eating each other's foods. And you have to be careful that the two-year-old doesn't try to steal the baby's food and or vice versa. I know with my daughter, once she developed tree nut allergies, but she didn't have peanut allergies, but my son was allergic to peanut. And so what I would do is we would drive to the local drugstore and I'd put a big old t-shirt on her and I'd go in and buy a Reese's cup and she would be delighted to sit in the parking lot and eat this Reese's cup. That is totally fun, but you could do it at home. With peanuts and tree nuts, no one reacts to the smell or being near to them. I mean, if you touch the food, you may get a local hive, but you're not going to get a systemic reaction. You're not going to anaphylax to the touch of the food. You have to eat the food. So for peanuts and tree nuts, it's pretty easy. Milk and egg, there's a few patients who react to things being cooked. So if you're steaming milk or scrambling eggs or cooking fish, there's a few patients who react to that. As long as you keep them separate, you're okay. You can have them in the same house. So if you want to do it that way, that depends on what you're comfortable with. I think what the way you did it, going to the store and having one kid, that's not an uncommon scenario. Or when they're visiting grandma and grandpa, one kid can have it, the other kid's at home, not. So you can, there's lots of different scenarios. And I think that's up to what you're most comfortable doing. Thank you for sharing that. And where were you a few years ago? Well, although honestly, my daughter loved doing that, but thank you. I really appreciate that data. So now let's go even deeper now into the feeding of the baby. So I know there are products out there on the market that contain all sorts of different varieties of the eight major allergens, hopefully soon to be nine. And I also know people oh, it's can- not. So that's approved. I mean, so the nine allergens approved. Do the products have it? I don't know because I'm not sure what's in all the products yet, but yes. But the, the non-allergen, that's the whole separate thing. That's the faster act that could approve, right? So we're very excited to have sesame added as an allergen because it's probably not really the ninth most common allergen. It's probably about six if you really look at the data. So it's That was very exciting. Do you want to share a yes. little more on the faster act with uh, our I listeners? Mean, so, so the faster act was an act that there was a couple parts to it, but the big part was adding sesame to the allergy label. So this was something that... Many groups 
were involved in for an extended period of time. I do remember going down to the FDA probably almost five, six years ago and meeting with them and meeting the board. It's like, why sesame? Like, it, why do we need it? How common it is? It is it does it cause severe reactions? Meeting with them and saying, yes, yes, yes. And then they said, okay, well, add it. But it took years to go from that small committee to it's now approved. And it's exciting that it's there. And it gives the FDA the ability in the future as new things come up to really sort of add things as they certainly realize like, hey, this is a major allergen we miss. Because the U.S. has nine, Canada has 10, Europe has 14. So we're not the same as everyone. But everyone else had sesame. We were the last ones to add sesame of these world organizations or world states that had food labeling. We were the last one to add sesame. So back to your other question about how to add food. I mean, so there are various commercial products that exist. Some add everything together. Some add one food at a time, slowly adding them up all together. For some families, that's a really easy way to do things. It it makes life a little bit easier. They don't have to think about taking the yogurt or the egg or the peanut off the shelf. But you can just take the stuff off the shelf. A lot of these products, you have to make sure that there is sufficient amount of protein. Some of the products don't have a lot of protein. Some have more. So you have to make sure that you have enough protein in the food that probably will induce tolerance. And when we looked at the studies that Gideon Lack did, the famous studies called Leap and Eat, you needed enough protein to make a difference. And when you had less, the effect really wasn't as good. So you really have to make sure that there's enough in the mixtures that have enough. And it's actually a fair amount of protein. It's 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 about two grams of protein is what they recommend, which is actually a fair amount. You need to take that about three to four times a week. So you need to eat a fair amount of stuff. So some of the mixtures don't have as much as others. So that's one thing to look at. But they all probably work. They're all probably safe. There's no great studies looking at them yet as a preventative, but there is some data. Using regular food or if you want to, the pre-mixed stuff, that's a personal choice. So now where does a parent find out what those minimum amounts? It should say should in the package. Ah, okay. It should, it should say this thing has X amount of protein, right? This X amount of this protein. It should say on the product. And then does a parent check that with their pediatrician? Pediatrician will go back to the guidelines. So the the guidelines that exist from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the allergy societies, the USDA. So they all say the same thing. And they'll give you some estimates. The Quad AI one actually tells you some ways to make it from regular products, how much peanut flour you can use or how to thin peanut butter, there's lots of ways to do it, how much milk. So there's lots of ways that you can do it. And that's sort of up to you. I mean, some of this is a quiet taste. Some kids don't like scrambled eggs. Most kids don't like scrambled eggs. It is a texture issue and they just don't like the way it tastes. So most people recommend starting with eggs and more cooked or baked. Kids are more likely to eat it, which is half the bottle in infants. So, so let's say a parent decides to buy a commercial brand or they just are going to do this at home and they're starting between four and six months of age. How long do they do this? You do it till it's come part of the normal diet. I mean, milk and egg and wheat are pretty easy. They're 
easy to get into your diet because they're such a staple. That's what they say. For the other ones, things like peanuts and tree nuts, there is no official recommendation. My guess is till the two or three. I think at that point, you've trained your immune system and you're probably okay. You don't need to eat it every day. We say three times a week, so it's not every day. Milk, egg, and wheat, you probably eat every day in a normal part of your diet. So that one's really easy. The peanuts and nuts, we tell people about three times a week. So, Excellent. Thank you. Now, is there anything else just on early intervention and prevention you'd like listeners to know about before we switch gears? Tell people not to worry. Go eat. Enjoy. Right? Feeding the baby should be a joy. Just enjoy and don't worry about it so much. I think this... We create too much anxiety and stress, and we should just let people eat and enjoy. We need to move away from us. We've created anxiety, and we need to move away from that anxiety that we've created. That is amazing wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing that. I I agree. Feeding my children, I was very, very anxious. So thank you for sharing that with listeners. Now I'd love to switch gears just a little bit to focus on you, actually, and your work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Food Allergy Center. It is amazing. And so can you share with listeners the diverse programs offered? I have to confess to checking out the website and having my heartstrings absolutely just pull when I saw the Food Allergy Bravery Clinic. We'll start with that one. So that one, it came out from exactly the anxiety that we talked about. We saw all these patients who have tremendous anxiety, who have basically developed such a fear, developed a true phobia of a food reaction so much that it was a true psychological phobia that they would be afraid to go out and do anything because they were afraid of having an allergic reaction. So we created a, with our psychologist who was a phobia expert and an anxiety expert a program with such that we would teach people how to handle phobia. It's called exposure therapy. So you don't can't expose someone to, if they're allergic to milk, to have milk. But you way you can do is expose someone like, hey, you're allergic to milk. Let's hold a carton of milk. You're not going to react to holding a carton of milk. It's just that idea and getting people used like, oh, I can actually hold a carton of milk. Oh, if milk spills on me and I can wash it off with some soap and water, I'm fine. It really helps because these some of these kids are so scared they won't go to school. They won't go out to their friend's house. They're like, come real, develop severe social phobias. And so that was developed of that. So we have used this called exposure therapy. It's made a big difference in many of our families. We have, and there are other programs that we have, we've developed, um, when we think of food allergy, people usually think about IgE-mated food allergies, so food anaphylaxis. We see all types of food allergy, whether it's food anaphylaxis, food protein-induced androcolitis, and eosinophilic esophagitis. We have organized clinics just for some of these subtypes of food protein-induced androcolitis and eosinophilic esophagitis, where we have both of those clinics have a gastroenterologist with them and a dietitian to help some of these families with the issues and physicians who really are sort of world experts in treating these diseases who see these things to handle some of the routine or more complicated patients. It's not uncommon for us patients to come into our clinic and we say, no, lo and behold, you really don't have food protein disorder colitis. You have a different disorder. You have something else or you 
or you do, and it's really only to one food. It's not to 50 foods like you think. So I think we do a lot of undiagnosing a lot. A lot of this is done through, we have a really large food challenge center. So we do food challenges to anything and all the time. So we do food challenges on a regular basis in a sort of a day hospital unit. So in a very safe location. By having access to that space where we can do about 10 to 12 food challenges a day, we can really help some patients figure out what they can and can't eat. And we also have large research programs, whether it's looking at basic science, looking at mechanisms of why these things have, looking at mechanisms, looking at to see if we can develop risk factors for severity, looking at markers developing tolerance, or treatment studies, looking at treatment studies, whether through we're one of the NIH COFAR sites for their outmatch study, which is being led by Bob Wood. We're also involved in many different pharmaceutical studies as well, involved in the treatment. So we have lots of different treatment strategies for both clinical trials that we look at for both basic translational and clinical research. You do amazing work over there. So now we're just about out of time. So before we wrap up, is there anything you want to share with everyone just overall? As COVID winds down, I'm going to give my two cents of COVID because people get really worried. So people with food allergies are no more increased risk for reactions to COVID. So you don't have more severe disease and you do not have increased risk for vaccinations. So you do not get more reactions to vaccines. I plead on everyone to get vaccinated. These new vaccines are probably one of the true miracles of science. These messenger RNA vaccines, I think all vaccines will be made this way in the future. They work so much better, and they have almost no side effects. They boost your immune system so well that you get fever, maybe in many people for a day, but that's about it. But they protect you right now against every single variant out there. It is a true wonder, and I recommend everyone get immunized to as many things as possible as soon as possible. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, my daughter, who's 17, received her second shot. So oh, congratulations. So she, she will be protected now. That's wonderful news. Yes, we're very happy for that. And before we end, I want to thank you so much for your work on the FASTER Act. I did not realize I knew you were involved. I didn't realize you were that involved. I'm involved for many reasons as a parent of a patient who has sesame allergy, as a provider of seeing lots of sesame allergic patients. So this was one of my goals to get this act packed before my son went to college. So I did it by, by this much. <laughs> it was a goal. My son is sesame allergic. He's in grad school. So thank you yeah. so much. It is life-changing. This act yep. is life-changing. I cannot thank you enough. So I want to thank you for your time today. I know you're just incredibly busy, but you're incredibly knowledgeable. And we so much appreciate your time and you sharing your knowledge with everyone today. And I do hope to have you back on the show. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Everyone be well. Before we say goodbye, I wanted to make sure you heard the exciting news that FACTS Teen Retreat has gone virtual this year and will be held this month from July 23rd to July 25th. This event is all about our tweens and teens living with food allergy. And one very special part of this retreat is that siblings and parents are included. The deadline to sign up is July 16, so head over to foodallergyawareness.org forward slash programs to learn more and how to sign up. 
Again, we want to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for sponsoring this week's Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.